Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Eric Bremen. He is the founder and CEO of Prospera, what is arguably the world's first charter city on Roatan, an island off the coast of Honduras. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So you are the CEO of Prospera. I'm not even sure that's the right title, but you are the mind behind Prospera. So tell me what, I guess, is your official title and what is Prospera? Sure. It is CEO and it is Prospera with an accent Prospera. at front. In Spanish, it makes a difference because it talks to present tense versus future perfect tense. And it's a statement we're making. Prospera is a platform for prosperity, seeking to create the conditions on the ground wherever we are partnered with a host government so that individuals can you know, reach their closest to their maximum potential. We realized that in order to do that, there's a combination of the built environment, whether it is buildings and housing and infrastructure, plus the generally unseen world of governance and rules and security, and obviously a healthy balance of a mixed economy for commerce to be taking place, innovation, and wealth creation in general. So at Prospera, we partner with governments to create a platform for prosperity so that their people can reach their full potential. Thanks. And so let's go a little bit more into depth onto what this, I guess, platform for prosperity. You mentioned two key parts, the built environment, as well as kind of the legal side, the laws and regulations. And you have announced your first project in Honduras, in Roatan. And so what does that look like in practice to develop this platform for prosperity? How do you both interface with government as well as how do you develop the built environment that allows for this, I don't know, higher than otherwise possible economic growth to take place? Or if you define that success in other terms, then what are those terms that you would define the the success in? Sure. So indeed, Honduras is the first government we've partnered with. It is the government that has gone the furthest when it comes to creating the enabling legal conditions for our vision and largely the vision charter cities to be possible. And the way it looks like is akin to a public-private partnership in the realm of the provision of governance services, where in the case of Honduras, through a constitutional reform and enabling legislation, they have created a special form of special economic zones, no pun intended, but that is significantly more vertically integrated when it comes to more dimensions of providing good governance. Special economic zones, as you know well, Mark, uh, and your listeners as well, are nothing new. What's special about these newer versions or more advanced versions of special economic zones is that they seek to strike at more than just one layer of the overall cake. They are more than just taxes or a particular regulation. In the case of Honduras, with their ZEVE system, they've really gone and understood what has worked best from various places around the world and created a very vertically integrated special economic zone regime. 
akin to a municipality with the legal and legislative powers of a state in the United States of America. So it is still very much part of Honduras. It very much has to follow key provisions of the Honduran constitution. But when it comes to pretty much everything having to do with local governance, of course, zoning and planning, permitting, but even beyond that, you know, legislative equivalent actions, you know, they have a high degree of autonomy. And so the way that those political subdivisions as they are get designed and constructed and staffed is similar to a public-private partnership where it's a joint effort between the government of Honduras and in our case, a private development group. By the law, it's called the promoter and organizer. And the effort goes through phases. In its initial stages, we had to come up with a number of proposals for how we thought the legal environment should be created so as to follow best practice and importantly, attract capital and generate jobs. That process, having been the very first time ever, took a while, about three years when it's all said and done. And it was a lot of back and forth of proposals, discussions, some debate, but largely, you know, really understanding what is really a best practice applicable in this part of the world. And so when all that was not done because it's an ongoing effort, but let's say sufficiently done with a charter, with a set of enabling statutes, regulations, a governance structure, and initial core staff, then we crossed into the next effort, which is more about the built environment. And it's just like software and hardware. You need both. So software can be great, but you need a piece of hardware upon which to run it for the full value to be created. And in our case, uh, we chose to start in Roatan, which is a beautiful Caribbean island that belongs to Honduras, a former British colony where they speak mostly English, use the dollar predominantly as its currency, has an international airport. It's interestingly enough about uh, the same size of the island of Hong Kong, one square mile larger than the island of Hong Kong. Yet it has less than 100,000 residents, estimated around 75,000. And it is largely underdeveloped compared to any of its Caribbean peers like Grand Cayman, largely because the legal system upon which it is governed has not been as conducive to foreign direct investment and any other industry aside from tourism really to flourish. So we see great potential as with everything, there are some challenges, but the challenges that an island such as Roatan has are largely things that can be overcome by investing in infrastructure and creating a critical mass of the right people with the right mindset, pushing forward for a unified vision. Whereas its advantages compared to the rest of Honduras, at least in the short term, are unparalleled. Not only is there international connectivity, but the heart and the culture of the people is very aligned with a multicultural environment they see outwardly as full of opportunity. They are, in fact, engaged in exports in everything they do. They were exporting fish primarily before. Now they're exporting tourism services. So it's a very outwardly looking culture with its unique character compared to the rest of Honduras. So they have a sense of pride in wanting to be the very best. And we think of ourselves as coming on board and partnering with the local population to unleash that potential. So to wrap up the physical environment, we've created a master plan that starts for a city scale development that starts with about 60 acres 
and can scale up to about 10 times as much, 750 acres to be precise, which is slightly larger than the Monaco. We're not trying to replicate Monaco per se, because the intended use of the physical space is about knowledge economy and predominantly Honduras, but as a footprint is similar to Monaco. You know, we've broken ground, we've started to build some basic infrastructure, and our first building should uh, be open for business here in the next month and a half or two, you know, COVID permitting. Oh, yeah. And congratulations. I used to joke a few years ago that Honduras was the place where projects went to die. And so I'm happy to have been been proven wrong that, that you managed to persevere and succeed. So I want to, I guess, get a little bit more into some of the sequencing of, right, like how you actually put together a project like this, how you get buy-in from the necessary stakeholders, how you actually create this legal system from scratch. But before doing that, let's, I think, start with the slightly more, uh, I don't know, let's call it uh, like conceptual level, right? Like why are these governance reforms important and why does it matter to improve governance? And then two, what led Honduras to actually implement these reforms that are really much more advanced in terms of the amount of decentralization of authority than in any comparable country? Okay. It's taking some notes here so I don't forget. If you do forget, just let me know and I'll repeat the question if I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's very clear that working institutions are essential for humans to achieve their maximum potential. I think it has, I mean, this can go as deep as you want philosophically or as superficial as just looking at the empirical evidence. But Starting on the latter, it's empirically demonstrated that where there are certain public institutions, prosperity is much higher on a per capita basis or almost any other measurement, including how the environment gets protected, human rights are advanced in general. And, you know, and it follows that the wealthier a society, the more it can take care of those things that are not so basic, like simply survival and eating and you know security. So obviously they care about the environment and higher education, the arts, etc. And you, know, you can see the correlation on which institutions are those. You can call them different things, but generally a strong regime for private property rights protection, the ability for disputes to be resolved effectively, efficiently, and fairly, and for there to be a general sense of security. Of course, physical security as the bare, bare, bare basics, but all the way up to legal and judicial security so that you know that your contracts can be relied upon. And I think that Anywhere in the world where there's more of that combination present, there is a higher level of wealth. And where there isn't, then you can see it through measurements of corruption or lack of rule of law and you know, various indices try to measure this, then the correlation is just unquestionable. So empirically, where there are these institutions, people do well in, in the aggregate and on an individual basis. I think philosophically, it has a lot to do with the nature of humankind. Insofar as we're not robots, we have our individual free will, and that can be its own philosophical debate. But I think largely everybody recognizes that on any given day, you make choices. You decide what you want to do next. And the way you make choices has a lot to do with the environment around you. It's not the only thing. You know, context is not the only thing that determines choices, of course. Your values and your principles and your objectives have perhaps a predominant role, but the context inside of which you're making choices has a huge role because it either reinforces or pushes against a certain type of choices that you can make. And I think a free society where people get to enjoy the fruits of their labor, 
generally incentivizes people to choose to work harder, choose to seek a better outcome, solve problems. And that ultimately, in the aggregate, in any given society, makes everybody better off because more problems are being solved and people are working harder. Whereas if it were a situation where it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to get exactly the same basic outcome, then obviously you're going to just work as hard as the average or eventually the bare minimum that you need to in order to get the whatever promised outcome you're getting. So I think it has a lot to do with the nature of humankind as a thoughtful thinking race and species. So that's, that's with regards to institutions now. With regards to why I think Honduras has been able to create the foundations, it's often said that necessity is the mother of invention. But I think in the case of Honduras, there's also been a combination of enlightenment by a handful of reformers that really and passionately want the best for their country with dire conditions and a very high degree of need for something different to emerge. And so when you find yourself desperate and seeing tragedy around you because you know your people can do better, you've seen it, you've traveled, and then on top of it, you see that there are places that were more poor than Honduras and in, in a couple of generations, 30 years or so, have become one of the most prosperous places on earth, like Singapore, for instance. Then you start to you know, make connections. And I think in the case of Honduras, there's, as I said, a handful of reformers of founding fathers, equivalents to the U.S. that were wise enough and courageous enough to not only identify what were things that worked elsewhere, but to pursue relentlessly implementing those within a legal framework that had durability and that was as compatible as possible with the current, say, power structures, cultural and legal traditions of the country. It's easier said than done. It's been well over 10 years of effort just in this iteration. And before that, there were several attempts to cause reform to happen, and they failed. And then we can get into the, you know, the benefits of doing zone-level reform versus national-level reform at some point. But it's been demonstrated that if you want to go deep and create solid foundations, you can't afford to do it all at once. And so anyway, so I think institutions are key. And I think Honduras had a, a significant need for institutional reforms and realized after many failed attempts that trying to reform everything at once was probably impossible. So they went a different route, a route that has worked elsewhere. And that's where the Zedes come from. Cool. Thanks. And so, right, like, I don't know, building a new city with a new legal system is, to a certain extent, a Herculean task, right? You have all of these different moving parts. You need to get land. You need to coordinate with government. And so how do you think about setting priorities, right? How do you stagger the sequencing of all of these different tasks? How do you set the priorities in terms of fundraising, in terms of hiring, in terms of land acquisition, in terms of government? And then how do you sequence all of those conversations to make sure that you can, right, like, I don't know, have all of the pieces in the right place and then kind of take off, hopefully, once that happens? Great question, Mark. In our case, being the first, if you will, at creating a Zede and breaking ground, maybe we're not the best example in terms of just what the sequence is to start a city. You know, cities, as you know well, are getting built all over the world and and then they get started with various degrees of either legal neutrality with its surrounding or its legal autonomy. 
but most cities have some degree of legal differentiation. Now, what's unique in our case, it's that it's not just a new city scale project, it's a whole new legal system. So out of necessity and also because that is the dimension that we are most interested in, since we think that it's it's where the biggest opportunity lies to make the biggest difference. There are various ways to make a city be better, whether it's technology or better master planning or marketing or, you know, there's a number of ways generally associated with the physical built environment, but where we think the biggest opportunity lies is in the intangible space. So for us, the sequence had to do largely with first seeking to get that right, or at least as right as we can imagine before starting to build a physical environment. So for us, it was all about that first. And obviously in coordination and communication with various market players that were slated to be early movers in various industries, we think that are going to be advantaged by this reform. But then after that, of course, you got to identify a good location and good is a relative term. But generally speaking, if you're in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be harder if you're closer to existing population centers and infrastructure, then you get to ride on those prior investments and and economies of scale. You got to have a master plan so that you understand where to start, what the capacity of future outcome looks like, and therefore modulate your early investments and you can sequence how much in infrastructure versus how much in vertical development might be the case. In our case, it started with the legal side. We needed, for legal reasons, to acquire land early in the process. And then now we're at the stage where we're developing that land. So you know, our fundraising followed more or less that requirement. Traditionally, cities don't invest as much time and money proportionate to where we are in the built environment. But we had to build something from scratch and for the first time. So we followed a, a more traditional startup fundraising roadmap, if you will, where you're raising capital more on an idea and on a vision and some initial intangible progress. Uh, you know, in our case, it was a seed round, then a bridge round, then a series A round. And that's what we've done. So we recently closed a series A round in the middle of a global pandemic, no less. <laughs> but Congratulations. Yes, thank you. And, and I'm also proud to say we oversubscribed by a wide margin and brought in a handful of very exciting investors that share the vision of lifting people and employing this technology of governance as the key to make the difference. And so, you know, very, very excited. Now it's about delivering results on the ground. But whereas I could say maybe nine months ago, we were still very much at a stage where we are investing our own resources, founders and angel investors, you know, putting everything we got to make this happen. We're now at a stage where though with Series A level capital, so clearly not the totality of what we'll need, we have a network of investors which have been behind some of the biggest projects out there that are world changing, including SpaceX. So I think right now, whereas before, we, if we execute, we weren't even sure that we we're going to necessarily have the financial backing. Right now, we still have execution risk and we still have to deliver. But I feel better than ever that we have the right partners backing us to make this everything it can be going forward. So anyways, that with regards to sequencing, I think I answered the question. But if I left something out, please let me know. No, I think that did answer it. So several questions before getting, I guess, a little bit more specific into some of these. 
I don't know, sub other categories. So you chose Roatan to start Prospera. Why Roatan? So, right, for those who don't know, Honduras has two main cities, Tegucigalpa, which is the administrative capital, and then San Pedro Sula, which is the manufacturing capital. And so the administrative capital, I guess, you don't really, there's not as much industry there, but San Pedro Sula does have a strong manufacturing base. So why did you choose Roatan over San Pedro Sula? Well, for a number of reasons, and I'll try to cover as many of them, but the ones that come to mind as the most important include when we were looking at Honduras as the best place legally to initiate this vision, it wasn't necessarily the best place in terms of international perception into which to attract foreign direct investment and the best and brightest minds to really solve this problem. And you know, it's an opportunity as well. San Pedro Sula, as little as 10 years ago, or in fact, I think probably five years ago, it was, when you Googled it, it was like the international murder capital of the world. <laughs> and so you said, well, that's where the greatest need is. And to some extent, it is true. Uh, we're trying to fight as few battles as possible in order to get to where we're going, right? So we need to pick our battles. And trying to convince the world that even though San Pedro Sula has historically been a murder capital of the world, that's where you know international capital should go and where prosperous new society can emerge. It occurred to us at the time as a bigger hill to climb. Roatan, on the other hand, it's already a, an international destination where 1.2 million foreigners visit per year. There is an existing expat community. Crime rates there have historically been effectively non-existent. And so there's a number of ingredients that need to come together for a significant enough amount of investment and creativity and innovation to occur. We thought that that sense of security was very, very important. And so that was one thing that tipped us heavy towards Roatan because it was the best place out of the whole country of Honduras, at least in that dimension. It's also a beautiful place and there's so many things about it that could go on, but that was a, that was a significant factor. I would say related to that, a key question that kept coming up for us and by third parties is the political stability of the country. And it seems like whenever there is a change of government or some controversy, there's a lot of protests and disruptances when it comes to just the ability to produce and export. And all of those happen on the mainland. San Pedro in particular is sort of a hotspot for social unrest. It is the manufacturing capital of the country, but that doesn't mean that it's the wealthiest on average. The Gini coefficient there is probably as bad as anywhere else. So, you know, when you're in the middle of creating something, the last thing you need is social unrest. And Roatan historically has not had any of that. In fact, in the last episode, we were in the middle of getting the set created in 2017. And, you know, there's a change of government or there, there could have been a change of government in presidential elections. The whole country went on martial law, except for Roatan, because they depend on tourism. The local population recognizes that it is not conducive to good economic activity if they are protesting on the grounds or disrupting the general sense of security. So there's kind of a self-correcting nature to how the local population thinks about how to deal with things that, hey, it's not perfect there, but they know that they're shooting themselves in the foot if they seek to solve problems through large-scale political unrest. So that was a second related to the first element. 
But you know, Mark, when we looked at, and you know this clearly because, you know, when we're working together, you helped us visualize some of this. But when you looked at different examples around the world of what has worked and what are kind of best case scenarios, we came to this Hong Kong to Shenzhen analogy early on. And we think that the same is possible in Honduras. And so we started in Roatan with a vision of unleashing there a Hong Kong-like jurisdiction. And by that, I mean it's primarily a knowledge economy service focused with a financial hub that then serves as a platform onto the mainland where more traditional industries like manufacturing can take place. And so while we focus primarily on Roatan, we also have a hub that is in the making right there across the water on a city called La Ceiba, east of it. And so the dynamic we're seeking to replicate is precisely the Hong Kong to Shenzhen and the rest of mainland China dynamic, where, as you know well, Shenzhen was just the first of these, they're not called Zedes, but similar special economic zones with deep reform at the institutional level that then not only was it itself very successful, but spread very rapidly through the rest of the, of the mainland. And so when that happened, Shenzhen itself was not a major population center. It wasn't the manufacturing hub. It wasn't any of those things. What drove, I think, its transformation was the legal reform and the connectivity to a hub of capital and knowledge, which was Hong Kong. Now, we got as much, we're trying to compress what happened in Hong Kong say not in 30 years or I guess 25 years by the time this initiated. And we're trying to do it more like in a tenth of it, you know, two and a half to, you know, to three years. But I think in the world that we live where capital flows very rapidly, where a lot of people get the transformative power of this reform methodology, that I guess what we're betting on is that we can make that happen in a much shorter period of time. And we've already secured land on the mainland with which to expand for a more traditional, say, manufacturing hub that can benefit from larger scale footprint, from access to hundreds of thousands of Hondurans that seek to leave each year in pursuit of better opportunity elsewhere. We think that instead of them leaving, you know, they can stay at home in a place like, you know, La Ceiba and be part of and benefit this creation of prosperity hubs that we hope to unleash. And then from there, if our bets are right, what we're doing with Prospera is not just a particular city-scale development, but perhaps more importantly, the foundations, and thus we call it a platform for multiple hubs to emerge. And they don't need to be all created by us or even managed by us. The idea is that some of these institutions that are being created from scratch benefit from network effects and from economies of scale. So the biggest and hardest thing we had to do initially is to create those. But once created, third parties can basically plug and play. They can use the you know, dispute resolution arbitration center. They can piggyback off of the common law, the restatement of common law. They can benefit from the network of service providers for general centralized services that make more sense to do in that way. That's why Roatan, there is a connection to the mainland, and it's not limited to just those two, but we see those as the two-punch combination that has proven itself to work very well in the best example of success that we've seen anywhere in the world to drive economic development on a large scale, and that is Hong Kong to Shenzhen. Great, thanks. And you answered some of my next questions too. So let's switch gears a little bit. How did you get interested in charter cities? I don't even know if that's your preferred term, but let's go with it. <laughs> this is a Charter Cities podcast. <laughs> yeah, of course. 
you know, Mark, I'm a Venezuelan by birth, and I grew up in Venezuela up until my teenage years. And the genesis of my today interest in this reform methodology is about the significant wealth disparity and opportunity disparity that I saw in my country of birth, where a select few had tremendous wealth and access to anything they wanted, and the vast majority didn't. And that got me on a journey to think about why that was the case, you know, as that these people have some issues, like personally, genetically, or what have you, or was it more than that? And clearly, I eventually realized that it was a systemic problem. It wasn't just an individual problem. I mean, don't get me wrong, the way people make choices ultimately has a significant effect. But if the system is stacked against the majority of the population, then it has negative effects. So that's what got me started in realizing as a young kid that the world could be a heck of a lot better. And going through a military academy and then Babson College to learn about entrepreneurship and wealth creation, I got this distinction between wealth redistribution, which was the formula that was pursued in Venezuela under the Chavez regime, and then wealth creation, which in a way is at the genesis of the United States of America and many other societies that have ultimately flourished. And it's a subtle distinction because you would think that poor people need wealth in order to access the things they need. And so any way you can get it to them is good. But it turns out that that's not exactly the case. That you can destroy the fabric of society by seeking to redistribute wealth as opposed to creating the conditions for wealth to be created and for that wealth to reach as many people as possible, you know, by them being part of the creation process. So I got that distinction and that painted a very clear, bright light as to what the generalized conditions should be for people to prosper. But then the how to get there was where kind of the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, one thing is to talk idealistically about the world and how it should be, and then the other is to chart a plan to how to get there. And around 2013, 2014, Babson College, my alma mater, uh, launched effectively a think tank slash consulting practice focused on rolling out entrepreneurial reforms throughout the world in partnership with countries delivered via city scale projects, which they were calling enterprise cities at the time. And this emanated from their observation that they were previously helping countries set up entrepreneurship schools, universities, only for those graduates to go into an economy that was fundamentally incompatible with entrepreneurial undertakings for a number of reasons, you know, whether it is the, the cost and friction to initiate, to start a legal entity, a company, to then everything else that follows, like rule of law and contracts, I mean, you know, justice. So it was natural for Babson to realize that there needed to be legal reforms, not just reforms at the college level, but in the economy. And when they realized that through consulting services, that that was pretty much impossible, then they, they developed this additional methodology to say, well, you're building new cities anyways from scratch. What if those new cities are given birth, if you will, with a more entrepreneurially friendly legal environment? So that's what Babson was doing. And since it correlated so directly with a lot of the work I did while at Babson doing economic development as one of my focus areas and thinking about institutional grade reform, it automatically resonated with me, it just sort of clicked. It occurred to me as the way to deliver the systemic transformation that was necessary, especially in countries that needed the most, in developing countries. 
So I quite literally raised my hand, reached out, was connected with a managing director at the time called Shankar Singham. And that's where what we're now engaged upon was born from. It was intended to be a partnership with Babson to help provide kind of the business model and financial structure to support the vision of rolling this reform methodology out. Initially, we thought about it more like a venture capital fund that would create a portfolio of a number of of investments. Hopefully, a handful of them worked, but we anticipated most of them probably wouldn't get past early conversations with governments. But we knew that if just as one or two of them worked, that they would pay for all the other failures and then still generate a profit. I think we were probably, what, five years, seven years, I don't know, 10 years too early with that approach. The market was just getting created. I mean, you know, that's when you and I connected, Mark, this whole industry. Very few people were talking about it. And clearly, there weren't that many opportunities around the world that were investment ready. And through a painful process of realizing that both going from very being very idealistic, saying, sure, I mean, just create a, you know, a, a portfolio of these and push them as much as possible. We came to the conclusion that that was a flawed approach, at least back then. We needed to concentrate every ounce of energy, resources, human talent, everything in at least one to get at least one created and have it be a demonstration of success or what can happen as opposed to being thinly spread. And that's how we eventually went from you know, the model that we had back then to deciding to partner with the government of Honduras and focus at, you know, exclusively, not just the government of Honduras as a country, but initiate with Roatan with a very specific niche that we're after in the short term, with a belief, a trust, a certain degree of faith, that if we get it right at a micro level, then the investments we have done as a platform will enable rapid growth directly by us or in partnership with third parties that want to develop their own charter cities or city-scale projects, and we can be enabling partners in a value-for-value exchange. Great, thanks. And so how has your, prior to starting Prospera or New Way Capital, which was the, I think, asset management firm that you just mentioned, what was your career? And you worked in mergers and acquisitions. So how has that experience then influenced how you approach charter cities, how you build out the team, What I've increasingly found, for example, as I'm building out the CCI team and as I interact with other folks is a lot of these things I didn't really think about that were like somewhat of historical, I don't know, coincidences, decisions have actually had a pretty substantial impact on my thinking of an action. So how have your kind of previous professional and as well as like non-professional, you talked about Venezuela, but there might be some other inputs that you've noticed have had an effect on, on how you think about building out Prospera. Yes. Without getting into the mystical or religious, Mark, I look back on my career and experiences and often get mesmerized by how perfect it feels like, you know, it's like what Steve Jobs said about connecting the dots backwards. So many of them feel like as if I was just, this is exactly what I need to be doing. Yes, I did M&A, emergent acquisitions, primarily sell side. Then I flipped to the other side, the commercial due diligence. And being in the world of investment banking, uh, private equity, and just say high finance, it's been very valuable because people often try to understand or ask me what is the most important role that we play. And in a way, it's to being able to bring various parties together and create a platform that is connecting different efforts. And this is playing off a lot of kind of like emergence and acquisitions, private equity portfolio building 
where for a lot of the critical dimensions that need to be created, it's made more sense to partner with third parties, sometimes provide seed investment, and then build a portfolio of, of enterprises and teams that are in a quasi-decentralized fashion, but with a common vision pursuing this which we're seeking to unleash. So being able to structure deals and align people and trying to make it work is something that so far has been very, very important. I don't know that I would be able to do it or had been thinking about it in the same way if I hadn't had that experience in the past. Other experiences you ask, maybe not so much in the professional realm that are relevant. I was fortunate to be part of a organization I'm still a member of called ICE, Emerging Young Entrepreneur Society. And this is a group of international entrepreneurs from all over the world in the 20s to 30s age range that you know are doing what entrepreneurs do. But in understanding that early stage of what it looks like to start a business, and not just once, but through a, through a network, has been very valuable too. You know, many of those people are involved in this endeavor and will become increasingly involved as well from being investors to being some of the early companies that are setting shop within Prospera to providing services. So again, you know, these people, not for ideological reasons per se, but understanding what it takes to create an enterprise and being passionate about the process and wanting to enable others to have the opportunity, get what we're doing and are part of it. I was also fortunate in the United States, 2000, and you know, one of our first efforts, actually, as I think you know, Mark, was in Arizona and partnership with Governor Ducey, who graciously asked me to be a co-chairman with his chief of staff for a committee looking at prosperity zones in the U.S. following this methodology. And that effort ultimately did not succeed, but going through having to register as a lobbyist in a state working with the legislature, with the executive branch, and, and kind of championing reform effort kind of showed me the, the underbelly of what it takes to cause significant legislative action and just legal reform. And just it, it's really humbling, actually. It's very hard. It takes a while. And there's a lot of randomness in the process that even if you're doing everything perfect, you know, things can just not work out. You know, there can be personal grudges between legislators that are key in various committees, as it happened in our case. But in any case, that having been a registered lobbyist, which I never thought I was going to be, going through that has also informed a lot of what we're doing now, and at least with a certain degree of humility, recognizing that it's very valuable that the legal system is already in place. Yeah. One of the things that I'm increasingly thinking about, so for context, CCI has gone from three people in February now we're at nine and the 10th person will be added probably in about a week. So I'm increasingly thinking about right how you actually grow both an organization, right? What kind of skill sets you look for, how you get the right, I don't know, vibe, the right culture, the right mix. And then CCI, we also see ourselves as trying to right, like grow the Charter Cities ecosystem in terms of who to partner with, right? Like how to get that right set of ideas. And so particularly for CCI as an organization, one of the things I'm trying to balance is this focus on international development. We think that there's a lot of overlap with the international development community and charter cities. International development community cares about global poverty. They care about urbanization. They care about these things that charter cities can really help make a dent in. But the challenge is the international development community tends to be a little bit, uh, let's say, I don't know, 
conservative in their thinking in that they don't like new ideas. They tend to think about, uh, I've had this experience at the World Bank chatting with folks, basically saying, hey, and they come up with like 10 reasons why it won't work rather than trying to think of like why it will work. And so we kind of look to a little bit more to Silicon Valley to have this like entrepreneurial spirit, how you actually figure out problems, right? Like, okay, this is not insurmountable. You just have to like think really hard. And it's been interesting seeing some of our early staff, right? Like previously, we, we had a conversation where it's like, okay, we're developing, for example, the governance handbook, which is a step-by-step process for how to create a new legal system. And early, they were kind of questioning, like, Mark, are you sure that you're the best person to like guide this, to lead this? Like, isn't there some expert we can talk to? It's like, no, you just have to figure it out. You have to like be smart and bang your head against a wall until you come up with some solutions. And they're increasingly seeing, right, like talking to the various academics, that the academics tend to be action averse. And so they need to have kind of like perfect knowledge to do something instead of realizing like, no, you have to get the best possible knowledge that you can in a reasonable amount of time and then make a decision and move forward. And if it's reversible, you can make that decision earlier. If it's irreversible, right, like take a little bit more time to gather. But this sense of right, like how you actually, I guess, build things. So one of the things that we've been trying to do internally is have this balance, right, have the knowledge and the expertise within the international development community, but also like mix that with folks who are more entrepreneurial, who are a little bit more risk taking, who have this, I don't know, understanding of what it means to build things. And we're trying to, as we kind of hire and staff up, like build out that right balance of, of folks, which is, as I'm increasingly thinking about this, I'm wondering how, how you went about kind of building the Prospera team, right? Like what is this kind of balance of skill sets that you're looking for? Obviously, you need the specific positions to fill where it's like, I have like X that needs to get done. So we need somebody who can do X, but then you have the broader, I don't know, organizational culture, this organizational backgrounds that I think you need to bring together one on the, the team itself, and then two, right, with the kind of whole project. So I'm just wondering, like, if you could go into a little bit more depth in terms of how you think about that. Yeah, great question, Mark. Well, first of all, the international development community, I think you're right that they, they're not necessarily going to be the ones creating the brand new models, right? And, and that's an institutional design. It's just the way it is. They're not necessarily structured to take on risks. Though, I'll tell you, I think that the, the DFC coming out of OPIC probably from what I gather, on the bleeding edge of being innovative when it comes to seeking and being willing to back new solutions. But even then, it's a very institutionalized approach. That's I'm not sure if it's a feature or a bug, but it doesn't fit quite well with creating something from scratch, that's for sure. At the same time, there's a lot of knowledge and experience out there in the world about very related things to what we're seeking to do. So to kind of throw everything out and, and say, well, it only takes being smart and hard work to create, to figuring it out, it's not exactly it either. So the way I think about it is there's a number of dimensions of things that we need to get right, which have been done before, and we don't need to innovate too much in, you know, like building roads, there are innovative ways to do it. You know, there's certainly like solar roads that you could do, but is that what's going to drive the biggest benefit? And if not, then don't innovate on top of innovations, you know, like, Focus on the things that are at the core and that need to be innovated around. So for us, that is in the legal dimension. That is in the realm of the, the institutions that we're co-creating and everything else is somewhat secondary with a few exceptions. And the main one has to do with the, the way in which the built environment that gets built. The construction industry is an industry that is rather archaic, not very innovative when it comes to how things are actually done. 
So we are partnered with some world-class institutions there to roll out some interesting innovations. And so when it comes to the team, Mark, I would say by far the most important thing for us has been alignment of purpose and vision and passion with being super smart and then balancing that off with a handful of experts, you know, subject matter experts, been there, done that, got the t-shirt for it type individuals. And so I have a team of young, hardworking, passionate and smart people driving well, and I say young, but in reality, I mean, I, it's of all ages, to be fair to Gabe and Nick and others. But they're not necessarily, they haven't necessarily done this 10 times before, but they know deep down that there's a better way and they're willing to, to discover it by not only research, but logical deduction and first principles thinking balanced with people who have been there, whether it's an Oliver Porter or a Tom Murcutt or Shirak Saha that you know, literally were there in the creation of Sandy Springs or Dubai or Songdo. So it's a balance between the two, the, the creators and innovators with those who've been there, done it, and they do need this connected tissue of wanting to try new things, but you can't expect that those two extremes are gonna do you know, the same thing. The, those in the international development realm are great to be a more of a sounding board, I think, than they are to come up with a brand new idea in this dimension, at least. I would say there, there is one cultural dimension to Prospera in a new way that I think is probably at the source of or our ability to get this far so far, and I think it's going to be key to continue to making progress. And I refer to it as being like water. And it's not necessarily the same way it's meant, but you know, to me, being like water is... You have to be somewhat flexible and water from the top of a mountain down to the ocean eventually gets there. It goes through obstacles either by going around them, over them, under them. Heck, you know, if the water stops and there's a dam formed, it, it creates enough pressure to then push through. So it's this destinal resolve to get to where we're going and everything in between are just things that you work through. They're not this tragic thing that now you have to stop. No, you, you, there's always a way around. And, and I think it's maybe easier with this type of endeavor, Mark, that you know, we know that we're out to create something where everybody's better off in the end. And it's not just a prosperous thing. It's a, you know, this reform methodology ultimately is about making as many people better off as possible. And I think even those that are in other extremes ways of thinking can relate to that. They might not agree with the methodology, but, but they can relate with the intended outcome. And that helps a lot. And it takes work to align, but because we're fundamentally after something good and worthwhile of our time that is very much necessary, I have found that it's generally only a matter of time and effort to get enough people on board to at least get past the particular obstacle onto the next challenge. Great, thanks. So let's start, I guess, a little bit more of a deeper dive. That was the introduction. So let's that's, that's, that's go deeper. Um, let's talk about the legal system, right? Like there's a few folks who have kind of created a legal system from scratch in the Dubai International Financial Center, but that was really only focused on finance. And so you've you've led this team creating a legal system from scratch that not didn't just touch finance, but touched really like all aspects. I mean, the Zeta law basically requires the constitution remains the same. International treaties remain the same. I think criminal law remains the same, but then other than that, you have almost a blank slate within which to create a new legal system. So can you walk us through that process? Sure. 
where to start? Well, I'll start at the basics, which is in our case, we needed to decide what was going to be the core legal system. And basically, common law versus civil law was a core forking decision. We went with common law. Why? Because it's emerged organically. It's more strongly correlated with higher degrees of wealth creation. And the major financial and business centers around the world run on common law. So not that that was an easy decision, but at least it's, it's fairly straightforward. Also, it's the nature of organic evolution of common law is very important to us because it correlates with our values that no matter how hard you work and how good you start on the next day, certainly the next five years and for sure the next 10 years, if it doesn't evolve, it's outdated. So common law lends itself to that, in fact, has evolved through thousands of years as a result. So common law was the base layer of kind of the principles of law that we're going to, that we adopted. And so for this, we created what is called the Roatan Common Law Code, which is a combination of restatements of U.S. common law and other international common law standards. A good chunk of it was curated by Tom Bell through his ULIX system. And then internally, we have gone through and statutorily and also in adjustments that we've done to the restatements themselves, made some corrections that we thought were important, or at least some adjustments that we thought were important. In the U.S. in particular, the way common law has evolved over the last 40 to 50 years has some flaws when it comes to the balance between equity and justice, maybe too much to the side of equity and not enough to the side of justice. But in any case, those are our judgment calls. So the common law was the base of it. And then we needed to create a layer that essentially created not just how to deal with more industry level matters, you know, and so it could be that there was no regulation, like industries don't need to be regulated, everything runs in common law, you know, that with tort law balances itself out. But that's not the way the world operates today. So there's a number of industries that are generally considered more risky than others and are therefore more heavily regulated than others. So in, instead of trying to go in there and come up with a deep, detailed set of regulations for each of these industries, what we did is we went more through a, a macro analysis of what were those industries that seem to be more legitimately representing risk to public health and safety. And instead of regulating it from scratch, we created a system where operators can choose. And, and it's basically a peer country system to start where there's OECD countries and then there's some pioneering countries when it comes to being more advanced in how to regulate certain industries. And what we did is say, okay, for let's say medical, this is an industry that's highly regulated around the world. How are we going to regulate it? Well, one option is that an operator within the space can choose amongst the peer country list, mostly OECD countries, all of which are considered internationally to be very high standard, let's say best practice, but we're not capable or we're not willing to say this one is the best across the board for everything medical because it's not true. You know, Some parts of the medical industry are better regulated, say, in Singapore, whereas others are better regulated, believe it or not, in Canada and the UK. So instead of us trying to go through the crazy effort of going through every industry and every niche within the industry, we created a system where it's basically polycentric in a way, in it that operators can choose. They must all choose amongst a high standard 
set of options. And then when it comes to enforcement, because now you don't have one system, you got whatever, 300 options to choose from. There is an enforcement mechanism that relies heavily on insurance and a decentralized way of having legal standing for anybody that is potentially affected to be able to make a claim and seek enforcement action. So we don't need to be expert in any one system or 300 of them. What we have is a system where the regulated parties effectively pay for insurance, which covers the random inspection that they're following whatever standard they have chosen. And again, very high standards across the board. So nobody will claim that an OECD country doesn't have a properly regulated, say, medical industry. They can argue as to which one's better for different niches, and that's fine. That's the market kind of deciding. But on day one in Prospera, by definition, you can have the best of what the world has to offer all in one place. And bureaucratically, for it to stay thin layer on our end, we're working with private, financially incentivized third-party insurance companies to help deal with the enforcement mechanism, just as the insurance industry does already when it comes to construction and medical. I mean, this is an expertise of theirs. They insure risks. Public health and safety is a form of risk. And the way to mitigate it is by following best practices to minimize the probability that what you are doing as a whatever, you know, hospital minimizes negative externalities. So that's, I think, the core of what we have done in order to be able to get started covering all bases from day one in a best in world status from day one. In addition to that, we do have a mechanism by which on a case-by-case basis, an operator can come and through the internal governance structure, which includes the the council and then an oversight committee, there can be proposals for either modifications to the already existing international standard or the creation of a brand new regulatory system that might be necessary with some important caveats to prevent uh, corruption and cronyism. And that is, if indeed this process goes through and it passes the filters that is demonstrated to be best practice, balancing risks, it becomes an option available to anybody else as well. You know, there's language used that anybody else that's similarly situated can then opt into that as one of the various options in the regulatory portfolio that Prospera is compatible with. So just like you could choose, say, Sweden, now there is Prospera version one regulatory system. And then this keeps it extremely dynamic, very competitive, and at a high degree of customization from day one without having to create all this crazy level body of law for every single possible industry. And we did allow for the third option, which is, in fact, just operating under common law, but with important caveats as well. And that is um, the... Two or three key components. One, the legal system pierces the corporate veil when it comes to managers and shareholders. If you choose to operate without following a safe harbor regulatory regime, you can, but you cannot then hide behind you know, a paper entity saying that, well, it wasn't me, it was the company, and the company doesn't have assets, therefore I'm not liable. That doesn't happen. Legally speaking, if you choose that option, that's fine, but the corporate veil does not protect you against liability to third parties to whom you may cause harm. You're exposed to treble damages. And as I said, even if you have insurance, which you can, ultimately the individual's management and shareholders can be held 
personally liable for negligence and harm to third parties for that they might cause through negative externalities. So, I mean, in those three realms, whether it is the common law approach, which is risky, but for some operations that to the operator don't represent much risk is an option, peer country regulatory system with insurance or a custom safe harbor regulatory environment, which will evolve over time. And I think ultimately we're starting on day one with pick the best that you want to, or let's create something even better. Over time, that as common law has emerged will cause the regulatory environments to emerge as common law did. So I guess in summary, we have common law with all of its benefits of being dynamic and evolving over time. And the layer, which historically doesn't have that, the regulatory layer, we have created a synthetic version of a common law dynamic within the regulatory structure, because on the one, you can choose any of the high standards or create one that emerges over time in a very open structure. I mean, I could go on for hours about the legal system, but in a nutshell, I think that's the most important part of it, at least when it comes to the laws and regulations that govern, let's say, the rule set that governs how business is to be done. Not all industries are regulated industries. You know, the more hazardous ones are regulated. Then I guess that we can go into, how, you know, more into the enforcement, dispute resolution, security, dimensions of the legal system. Those are important. But I guess you were asking more about the legal part itself. Sure. Yeah. And we can get to those in a few minutes. So to me, what I see as, I guess, one of the primary advantages of your legal system is one, it does allow best practices. It does allow this evolutionary approach. For example, it also lowers what might be on a relocation costs. So if an American company moves, they are already familiar with the American regulatory regime and can just choose that. If a French company moves, they're familiar with the French regulatory regime. And I imagine that those kind of figuring out new legal systems is probably not a trivial cost in moving. I don't really know, but that's my guess. To me, I don't know, one of the, maybe you have a good answer for this, but one of the challenges I see is that it's not clear to me, right? Like I see legal systems as being bundled. And so there's this discussion, for example, Patrick Friedman, he sort of talks about this very frequently, like law as code, where you can like take different pieces and like cut and paste them within a new legal framework and get a good result. And it's not clear to me that that is I guess, how law works, where, for example, if you take French regulation for, I don't know, let's say like pharmaceutical manufacturing, which might be dangerous because you're mixing a bunch of chemicals, right? Like that has some dependencies on the broader French legal system where there are court case precedents, where there are, right? Like it's not easy to like take that out and plug it into a different system. And so maybe there is a good answer for that, but I'm not sure, I guess, like how would that work in Prospera? Yeah, well, that's where then the judicial equivalent or the arbitration center comes into play. The truth is that even if you're super prescriptive about everything and you only have one system which you deem to be perfect, the reality is that when there are issues that come up, there's always going to be some interpretation as to whether the principles or the letter of the law or regulation were followed. I mean, this is always the case. It's never black or white. So when it comes to this situation, and especially because there is a common law backdrop, right? So I think the French run in a civil law system. So there are going to be some conflicts between common law principles and civil law principles. When it comes to common law principles, and for example, tort law, there are clear standards that talk about what is negligence, to what extent you should have known, could have known, and you know, did or didn't do enough about to prevent the risk, and therefore third-party harm 
So in the end, Mark, when it comes to it, those judgment calls are going to be made by a qualified judge. Now, what Prosper has done is that it's created this Prosper Arbitration Center with a bench of world-class judges, including you know, Supreme Court justices at the state level in the United States and Australia. And these are people that are in the business and have developed, a, in some cases, multi-decade careers at looking at complex matters and resolving. You, know, you said you're going to operate under the French system. Okay, well, what were you supposed to do to ensure the safety of, of the public? And did you do it? Right. And what are the basis for you to say that you've done it or not? And so we, I guess, took a more humble approach in saying, look, we don't need to solve for all of that up front. We just have to have enough clarity so that the principles are clear. And I would assume that I don't know the French system and this is hypothetical, but I would assume that given all the number of pharmaceutical companies that operate in France, that there's enough clarity there for what is supposed to be done and how. And that if they're not following that standard within Prospera, that it's going to be clear because that law is public, it's open, and it's transparent. And so when somebody, if somebody is hurt, let's say by a pharmaceutical company manufacturing within a Prospera hub that did not do the level of inspection before the drugs went out the door, for example, again, all this hypothetical, but in France, they should have done step one, two, and three. You know, that's the sort of thing that we don't have to say exactly but a judge will come and look and say, well, what's the standard again? What do they do in France? You get technical experts, expert witnesses, and then a case gets built and the judge looks at it and makes a determination. And so it was important for us that we started with at least one bench of judges that were world-class and understand the prosperous system. But you know, dispute resolution is you can do choice of law and you can do choice of dispute resolution. So you want to go with, say, AAA in the United States or the London Arbitration Center, that's fine too. But the point is, they're going to ultimately look at the facts and make a decision as to whether or not you follow the letter and the spirit of the regime that you said you're going to follow. All along with a third-party insurance company that is backing that as a third-party on the hook of potentially whatever liability that operator is exposed to. And so before it gets to the court, because you say, okay, fine, they commit something horrible, somebody is hurt, it's a little too late. And in some ways it would be. So before it ever gets to the court, you have like this private oversight with a third party that's on the hook that if this company doesn't follow the French system and is ultimately deemed to be in violation, the insurance company is the one's going to have to pay the damage or at least a significant part of the damage. There's a minimums by statute that they have to cover. So that is supposed to work as a before damage is done, a private contractual relationship of what they're going to do to, in fact, comply with the, say, French case in this particular scenario. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that does. And you talked about the Prospera Arbitration Council. So let's go a little bit more in depth onto that. Like, how does that function? What services does, does it provide? If you are a resident or business in Prospera, what are the advantages of choosing the Prospera Arbitration Council over other arbitration services? Yeah, it's the Arbitration Center, uh, the Prospera Arbitration, arbitration Center. Center. Okay, sorry about that. No, no problem. So let me back up for a second and point to some differences between the Prospera Arbitration Center and a typical arbitration center, because then it goes to answer the, the question of what are the advantages. 
typically an arbitration center is providing arbitration services that tend to be private, confidential, right? And about resolving commercial disputes primarily. The Prosper Arbitration Center, on the other hand, is there to, to do more than that. It's in fact, by default, open and public and its resolutions are presidential. You know, if they're open and public, they set precedent to help evolve the prosper legal system. The judges are all trained, I mean, in common law case handling. So the rules of evidence and the rules of procedure are much more aligned with what you would expect in a public court than what you would in a private arbitration center where, you know, it varies quite a bit. And in any case, they're private, you know, by default, they're private. So the Prosper Arbitration Center, we call it the PAC. The PAC is by default public. It's open. It's following the rules of evidence and procedure that are at the highest levels with the public court because the decisions being made will set precedent. They're available, and that is precisely a feature to help the dynamic of common law serve not just the evolution of the Rotan Common Law Code, but also the evolution of the regulatory system. So when the first case gets resolved, for example, not just of a French company following the French system, but any company following any other system, that that resolution will be public and will set a precedent that then everybody else can look at and say, okay, that's kind of the framework, the legal framework, just as you do in Delaware today when judges make decisions. The second important thing is that they're not just dealing with pure commercial matters. Of course, that's going to be the core of it, but they're able to resolve issues of labor disputes, hazardous materials disputes. We've even created a criminal equivalent through, instead of going to jail, you pay a fee. So there's a criminal set of fees. There are fees for criminal-ish actions that can be resolved in first instance with the arbitration center so that your only solution is not to throw someone in jail. So if you have a break-in, trespassing of public pro- of private property, that would generally be a criminal offense. And the only thing you can do is go down that route. In Prospera, you have a monetary, a civil solution for a criminal problem. So in the website, you can see all these, you know, PAC.HN. But ultimately, what is the benefit? The benefit is that you have a low-cost, high-quality mechanism to access justice that is public, is presidential, and that already understands the Prospera legal system, which, again, it's largely common law, so it's not very unique to just Prospera. It's, it's an international best practice. Now, it is there as a default service provider. So if the parties do not select an alternative, then the PAC applies, just like you would, say, in a court. So if, even today in the United States, you and I can enter into a contract. And if we don't say anything about how we're going to resolve the disputes, then generally, I guess we would have D.C. or Maryland have jurisdiction. We have a dispute the Maryland courts or the D.C. courts have jurisdiction. Or we could say in the event of a dispute, we're going to go to arbitration center. So in Prospera, the default is the Prosper Arbitration Center, but you can also opt out and say some other system. But here's where it's related to it, but where I think we've inserted a key innovation if you have a dispute of a public nature in Maryland, you have no opt-out of the public court system. I mean, you know, you're kind of stuck with the Maryland courts and then the district courts, and then eventually you go up to the Supreme Court. All of those are part of the state. You know, the court system is part of the state. I mean, you have division, right? I mean, different branches of government, 
but they're all part of the same monolithic state structure. And as a company or as an individual or as an interest group, you're kind of stuck in that. In Prospera, we wanted to create an opt-out of that. Well, first of all, we're not a state, but we could have had a situation that's very similar where you end up with the arbitration center because that's the mechanism of last resort. Here, whenever you have a dispute as a resident, individual, or, or legal entity against a Prospera-related entity, even if the dispute resolution mechanism was by contract, the PAC, when there's a dispute, the parties have a window of time, the non-Prospera parties have a window of time, in which they can choose to opt out of the PAC and go automatically to an international arbitration center. In our case, the default is the AAA, but over time, we'll add more. So that as private parties with each other, you have it as a default. As private parties against a Prospera-related entity, which is public-private, you have the PAC as a default, but you can opt out last minute even if you didn't do it contractually. Yeah. So anyways, those are some of the key features. I would say further that building on what the Dubai uh, International Financial Center courts did, they have super high power judges and lawyers for big cases, but then they have frontline arbiters of sorts. I think they call them judicial officers, where they resolve lesser matters very quickly. We have a similar structure. In fact, a lot of these instances are going to be dealt through mediation so that they don't even have to be a full arbitration case as long as the parties agree. So it will be voluntary. But following the example of Dubai, often if you hear from, in their case, a judicial officer, it says, look, we should mediate this. And I'm not giving you the final resolution. However, I am an expert in how the arbiters are likely to decide. And my opinion is that you're likely to lose and you're likely to win. That generally gets the parties to agree on something relatively quickly. By the way, in Honduras, one of the big things that we think is going to be of value to the residents is the labor tribunal of the PAC, which has effectively a guaranteed resolution within 30 days. That one is built upon the Singapore model. In Honduras, when you have an employer-employee dispute, it takes forever to resolve. And generally, the employees are the ones that feel that they were um, raw end of that deal, if for no other reason, because it took forever. In our case, it's guaranteed to be solved in 30 days. And it's not always going to go the way of, of the employer. But building on what Lee Kuan Yew or Singapore did, we think that it's of more value for it to be fair, transparent, and fast as opposed to certainly for it to be one-sided or worse for these things to drag on forever and not be resolved. And so what's the role of the Prospera Council? The Prospera Council, you can think of it as similar to a city council. If you have a city, the city council is the kind of ultimate decision-making body when it comes to rule setting. In the case of Prospera, it has a couple of additional layers that make us a big difference from an institutional perspective. First of all, the council has nine seats. Those nine seats are shared between nominees by the promoter and organizer, which is a private and for-profit enterprise, which is you know, basically creating the whole platform, and elected members by residents of Prosper. Over time, the majority of the council will be elected by residents, five out of the nine members. In the beginning, when there aren't that many residents, it's a combination between four seats nominated by the promoter and organizer, two seats nominated by landowners, 
and then the balance elected by the residents or selected by the residents. Yeah, so I mean, that's the council. It's a rulemaking body. It is balanced in its composition. Ultimately, it's majority selected by the residents through a similar electoral process as you would expect in a typical democratic election. I guess what the council is not, the council is not a bureaucracy or intended to run you know, the day-to-day operations of Prospera. They're not like in a city council. They're not necessarily, there's not an executive branch that then is hiring all the city employees that are carrying out the services. They're there to do rule setting and provide oversight. And following the Sandy Spring models that Oliver Porter developed, which is on our board and on the council, the council is basically overseeing a number of contracts that are issued for the delivery of frontline services, whether it is basic administration or security or trash collection, etc. And what is the general service provider and how does it relate to the council? Well, the general service provider is basically the main contractor of the council. It's a subsidiary of the promoter and organizer set up as a general contractor, which is then now going to market and soliciting bids from various service providers for categories and specializations within the portfolio services that make up the well the general services that you would expect from a municipal type corporation so you can think of it as a general contractor that is overseen by the council but that has delegated authority to make hiring and firing decisions for the delivery of services on the ground great and what is the agreement of coexistence it's a contract it's the closest thing to a social contract actually being a real contract. It lays out the core principles upon which a resident is expected to perform and on the flip side, what Prospera is expected to deliver. So it's a contract of service, you know, for services and of standards. It lays out not only the rules, but the way in which disputes are going to be resolved and the remedy that the parties have. And you must sign it in order to be a legal resident within a Prospera hub. So, yeah, it's a contract. And what that means, Mark, amongst other things, is not just a nice thing to have a piece of paper signed and finally have a social contract that's a real contract in this case, but it gives legal standing to both parties in the same way. So it brings the provider of services, in the case of Prospera, to the exact same level as a resident because this is a contractual relationship. So if there is a breach of contract, including Prosper not following its own charter or standards or delivering services as it promises, then the resident is a contractual party that can sue Prospera in the AAA and have the case resolved in the AAA of the United States if it doesn't want it resolved in the arbitration center. And, and right. Prosper has a, a holding company that is a U.S. firm, so it's completely exposed to the reach of enforcement at the highest level of the force of law. Great. And walk us through, what does it take to register a business in Prospera? You know, that's probably best done online. (laughs) There's a guide online and it's fairly simple. So I won't go through the steps, but we believe we have a very, very efficient, certainly compared even to the United States. It's not necessarily cheaper across the board, but it is a lot more efficient and over time it will be cheaper. 
Great. And so let's move on from, I guess, the legal system. One of the, I think, key challenges in building a charter city is ensuring that there is support from the local population. And right, we've talked about the Honduran government generally, and we've talked a little bit about Roatan, but how have you gone about kind of building relationships with the Roatan population, ensuring that they understand the benefits that Prospero can bring? That is is a very important dimension often overlooked. When you talk about the Roatan community and populations, it's a relatively small island, but it's a complex society just like any others. And in our case, we have a local village that we decided to partner with and be neighbors to. And then you have the broader Roatan population, but then you can divide that amongst the political leadership, the business leadership, the civil society leadership, youth activists. So what we have what we have attempted to do is from an early early on, even when we were deciding on what land to buy, we had several options. One of them had as a feature in my book a local village, a native village to the island, mostly English speaking. And we wanted to get a feel for that community and you know what their needs were, what their culture was. So before we did anything else, and for over a year and a half, we had a number of programs, empowerment programs and social impact programs, ranging from empowerment funding of providing capital to small entrepreneurs, mostly women-led businesses, to creating a workshop where it's kind of like a, a tech shop, but with much more basic machines that villagers could use to create artisan artifacts to sell to the tourists to a small village school, to a water utility company. And we've expanded our activities, but it's all about getting to know the community, understanding their needs, and then planning for ensuring that they have access to opportunity in a very proactive way, I might add. So not just through a trickle-down economics mentality that, look, if we create wealth next door, eventually it will trickle down to them, but rather what are these people capable of doing right now that benefits the project and them in the process? So, you know, we've, we've got a gamut from construction workers to artists to you know, the kids themselves going to school. I think it will take a generation before they can be productive members of society. But still, it does make a difference to have a young teenager today learning better English and better math for what he or she will become in a broader sense. So we've invested in having an intimate relationship with that village. I know a lot of them by personally by name. And we have a team on the ground that is, I guess, hand in glove working with them in some areas. It helps that our technical secretary or the maximum legal official within the Honduran structure is from the island, born and raised. Tristan Monteroso is his name. He has a, a very intimate understanding of the community at large. He was the president of the pastor's association for the whole of the Bay Islands, meaning that he was very active and knowledgeable about the community that we're operating with, but then the community at large. It's funny, whenever I go down there and I'm with him, people know him, everybody knows him, not in a celebrity sense, but like in a, I want to give you a hug sense, you know, this very loving man. He's a big guy, not high, but strong. And yet people come to him and, and just really appreciate the work he's done. He goes, prays at the, in the prison with prisoners. And anyways, nothing beats having a partner on the ground that has invested most of his life in understanding the local context. And then beyond that, you got the political leadership and the business leadership. And this 
might sound a bit more transactional, but in the end, it's absolutely important to ensure that you have enough of these individuals that know the local realities, be vested in the success of the project. And that takes different forms. In some cases, it can be they are an investor, as it's the case. In other instances, it's them providing, being one of the service providers within the jurisdiction in the realm that they're experts in, let's say telecommunications as an example. The point is, though, that it's unrealistic, impractical, and counterproductive to imagine that you're going to create a like an oasis of prosperity where you're not proactively including the local population. So that's going to happen eventually. We've been we've been doing it at the forefront at every level. You know, the grassroots, grass tops, tree tops. You know, leadership and what have you. And that's heavily focused in Roatan for the time being. As we expand into La Ceiba, I think we'll copy the same model. It's proven to be very successful so far. So we've talked a lot about the legal infrastructure for Prospera, but the other core component is the built environment, the physical infrastructure for the city. And so how have you approached that generally? How have you approached, right, like ensuring, I don't know, easy access to commutes, ensuring the proper use of land, uh, zoning and land use regulations, as well as the kind of physical infrastructure itself, ensuring there's reliable water, electricity. And then on top of that, you have partnered with Saha Hadid, which is one of the best known architecture, urban planning architecture firms in the world. So to start, before going into a little bit more detail, let's just have a high-level overview of how you approach uh, thinking about these challenges. Sure. Uh, at the highest level, Mark, we've got a framework that points to the built environment necessarily being flexible, profitable from the beginning. Kind of by flexible, I mean responsive. We don't know. I mean, we have some industries that we are prioritizing and seem to make sense in the beginning, but the reality is that we don't know with absolute certainty what's going to emerge here in the next 10 years. So the built environment has to provide flexibility, has to be scalable. And in Rotan in particular, we're very sensitive to the environment. And so ideally, it's very green and integrated with nature. And importantly, it needs to be able to cater to various layers of the socioeconomic ladder. So it can't be just high-end residential or high-end offices. It has to be from the high-end, sure, but also accessible to the very local population. You know, And I mean very, very local, as in the village next door, local which is not a wealthy village at all. It's a relatively poor village. So it has to fill the spectrum and then be all the other things. Obviously, we've looked at the more standard, latest thinking of walkability and neighborhoods have to have proximity to uh, not only live, but work and play and and, uh, public spaces. I mean, these things are embedded. They're not what I spend most of my time personally thinking about. That's why we've partnered with uh, world-class organizations that know much more than I'll ever myself. But in Roatan, obviously, we're creating a physically built-out environment where you want to be connected to nature, have access to technology, not only services, but also beautiful, beautiful physical location where you can go to the park, go to the beach, you know, you look at your home from the outside and it just looks great. You asked about Saha Hadid and that particular firm. And indeed, they are one of the very best. The area where they are adding the most value outside of just the aesthetic design, which is very unique to them. I would say that uh, the most exciting dimension that they're contributing to is 
they've designed for us a supply chain, not just an end product that shows up as one of our first residential solutions. It's a whole supply chain integration, which seeks to leverage primarily locally sourced sustainable timber with the local labor force, given their skill sets, while preserving and being able to deliver as a product, beautifully designed, modern, and technologically integrated solutions. And to bridge that gap, there is a virtual to digital fabrication component to this that combines the best of what modular construction has to offer in a traditional sense. And the negative side of that is you got cookie-cut, boxy solutions. So it gets rid of that and combines it with digital fabrication so that you can have the very customized end product. So you get the best of low cost of mass production with beauty and functionality of customized end product while integrating the local supply chain and local labor force. I would say that that's by far the most valuable contribution that Saha has done for us. And that that model we seek to replicate in everything else that gets built, which on an island, but in general, the construction industry has several opportunities for improvement. Not the least of which is the time to actually construct buildings. It's quite a while. With this approach, we shortened that period of time almost by a factor of three, while being able to produce at a lower cost than, and I would argue, in a much more modern and beautiful result. So previously, you've spoken about long-term kind of becoming a financial hub, becoming the Hong Kong to mainland Honduras's Shenzhen. So what does this look like in a more, I guess, short-term context? What industries do you target? What industries do you bring? How do you kind of develop the core, I don't know, economic locus of Prospera? Yeah. So if you had asked me this as early or as recently as January, I would have told you that our core industry was medical tourism. But COVID obviously has, uh, let's say, disrupted that industry quite a bit, not only because of travel, but the medical space in particular has been rather overtaken by this. I do believe that medical tourism and innovation is going to be a core industry, but in the immediate term, we have pivoted more to just the general knowledge economy, so human cloud services, if you will. What we are pivoting towards right now and the built-out environment that we're constructing for is for young Honduran professionals and entrepreneurs to be based out of Prospera and be able to, from there, have jobs anywhere in the world. There's a layer of service associated with that, which is sourcing and structuring their job with an American and European firm so as to be of the lowest friction possible to the employer so that for them, it feels like just having another employee. They just happen to be remote. And the types of jobs are, you know, in the knowledge economy, the types of jobs that you can do remote, whether it's accounting or architecture or graphic design or software development. So we've pivoted towards that as a starting niche. It's somewhat diversified in the sense that what's similar about the jobs is that they can be done remotely. Primarily, that's the core requirement but the industry can be quite varied. What we're finding is that the early adopters of this are coming on with more than just dollars and cents as their motivation. So yes, of course, it's great that you can have an accountant knowing gap standards for a third of the cost as you would have it in the US, a huge selling point. And by the way, if there's ever been a time to do this, it's now because the positive side, I guess, of COVID is that 
remote work is now by necessity quite acceptable. Whereas seven months ago, it was a bigger push. So yes, of course, they want a, an accountant that's going to do high quality work for a third the price. But I think most of the early adopters have more than that as a motivation. I think that they understand what we're seeking to create and whether it is on the social impact side of things or whether it is ideologically motivated, we know that there is an early adopter subsidy of sorts that comes from the non-just economic means. You know, they want to be part of unleashing this platform onto the world, this methodology. And in the process, they are benefiting. So it's, it's not a charity. They're getting labor that is of quality for a fraction of the cost. Yeah, and so for the Honduran side, what this means is young professionals and entrepreneurs being basically the seed population that is moving here for a young professional Honduran in San Pedro or Tegucigalpa or anywhere. Having the opportunity to move to Roatan to a development like the one we're creating is a huge upgrade comparatively speaking. It's people go to Roatan whenever they can as sort of as a great opportunity for vacationing. To live in a paradise like Roatan is in relative terms is a huge upgrade. So we're getting a lot of excitement by a group of Hondurans that I think represent the best of what Honduras has to offer. And so with that, Mark, you start to layer a foundation of human talent and resources that is necessary for knowledge industries and service industries like banking and insurance and consulting and lawyers and family offices and all these sorts of things that would have been the early stage of the Hong Kong equivalent. So we start with human cloud, and then that's a thin layer to build upon all these other things that are necessary. Great. We've got a few minutes left. So sell us on the 30-year vision of Prospera. <laughs> well, 30 years from now, it's 2050, right? So Prospera 30 years from now is a network of distributed prosperity hubs around the world, sharing some common software and services so that they all have a base level of quality and standards everywhere from human rights to security and justice and what have you. You know, that's at the most abstract of senses. I would say that having a multi-million strong population in a distributed sense of people in places where otherwise they would not have been able to even get close to their potential performing at close to or above their potential is kind of the dream come true. Multi-million strong distributed population close to their families and where they choose to live has a tremendous level of importance. This location of populations causes tremendous harm, you know, refugees and what have you. So people can stay at home with families where they were born and still do great. It's a huge value. But, you know, that's way out there and it's very abstract because it's hard for me right now to tell you that the hubs are going to be in X countries around the world. What I can tell you is that this first instance of deploying this in Honduras in partnership with the government of Honduras and the people of Honduras, 30 years from now, will look very similar, but in a smaller scale to Hong Kong, Shenzhen. And then from there, we hope two or three additional hubs running on the Prospera platform within mainland Honduras. You would imagine that the aggregate population is probably just shy of a million, a million and a half people 30 years from now. Honduras is a 9 million strong population now, so somewhere in the 7 to 12% of the aggregate population would be an aspirational, but I think achievable market share of the Honduran population benefiting from 
prosperous governance services and beyond. Yeah, I mean, that's high level the vision as a company. What we seek to create is to inject the best of market dynamics, competition and innovation into the provision of these critical services, typically referred to as governance services. And so eventually this matures into being a publicly traded company where shareholders can provide capital to make this reality underground, but also benefit from the efficient provision of these services with the same type of self-correcting dynamics that you see in companies. In our case, though, there's a fundamental innovation in business model, which is, you know, as a socioeconomic development organization, the way in which Prospera ultimately captures and internalizes wealth is by creating generalized prosperity, you know, and it does so by creating general conditions. So the more people that are within the, the network of hubs and they're better off that they're doing, the better shareholders will be. Therefore, the financial and market incentive from the shareholder base all the way down is to create and keep and propel the conditions that maximize generally prosperity. Then that is not a libertarian or socialist capitalist. It's not a political ideology. It is about the empirical facts of the right balance between some rules, liberty, and so that as a human society, on average, people can be better off. And so what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do as a group, is connect the best of civil society, of public mentality when it comes to human rights and the environment, you know, protecting these issues of collective action, but inserting into it the tremendous benefit of competition and market dynamics that clearly work in a certain way, where, in other words, and you're an economist, we're internalizing the positive externalities of good governance in a structure that I think keeps it all within one roof so as to make it financially viable. Great. And so lastly, are there any questions that I should have asked but didn't ask? I would say maybe something about why in general and why now. You know, like why is this necessary in general and why is now a good time, you know, in the world as is. All right. So I'm asking those questions now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I would say that why in general is that the world as a whole has gotten much better almost by every measure. Right. Yeah. And I know it doesn't necessarily feel that way when you see catastrophes and wars, but if you zoom out, the world has gotten a lot better. However, there's still a very significant portion of the population that is in dire conditions. And as better as the world has gotten, we don't know how much better it could have been if the types of drivers that have propelled that generalized prosperity would have been more powerfully injected and sustained. So a lot of the countries that were at the source of this generalized prosperity are deteriorating, governance institutions are becoming corrupt, more centralized, etc. So in general, we can do a heck of a lot better and we can build on top of what we know works. For the past 500 years, there have been perhaps a thousand, Magna Carta could be one of the first starting points, but certainly over the past several hundred years, We have seen how different forms of governments work, how institutions make such a big difference. You asked about this earlier. We know a lot more now than we did 300 years ago. So we have an opportunity now that we've seen that various degrees of this institutional structure works to leapfrog 
and not only deliver it as a service in parts of the world that desperately need it, but inject it into parts of the world that are doing fine and can actually propel us even further into the world of innovation and wealth creation and what have you. So that's as a general statement. Why now, as opposed to, say, 10 years from now or 10 years ago, you can see cracks in the system now more than ever, (laughs) whether it is in first world countries, superpowers, or in emerging superpowers that have a lot of strength, but they can be scary in some ways in terms of their principles and values. So I think right now where we have an emerging generation of people who are very committed to trying to drive change, social change, you know, protect the environment, whatever, right? This is almost like an innate need of an emerging population. They're after change. We better have something for them that is constructive, right? We better create an option for change and transformation that is built on empirical evidence to work and to lift people up as opposed to repeat the catastrophe of history of centralized power and tyranny and dictatorships. So right now is important because it's when it's needed and we have a generational change. And I think that by proving this model out just a couple of times, it will become a new standard of performance that you look back on and you wonder why the heck did we ever do it differently? Just like today, people generally accept that democracy and public institutions that are not a king make sense. I think within our lifetime, Mark, and certainly we both seem to be committed to that, people look back to it and say, wow, you know, whoever thought about doing this differently. So I think the time is right. Great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Letter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. Mm-hmm.